Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, friends. Welcome to this very special edition of The Midnight Reading. All of the other entries in our series of dramatic readings of lost literary classics were recorded in studio, but this one was the first ever recorded in front of a live audience at the beautiful 53rd Street branch of the New York Public Library. It was recorded on March 9th, 2017. But first, this exciting episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? You gotta know that it's people who make your business a success. The right people. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. ZipRecruiter isn't like other job sites. It doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. As a matter of fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No need to juggle emails or calls to the office. With ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard, you can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And you can do it for free when you go to ZipRecruiter.com Fireside. That's right, go to ZipRecruiter.com Fireside, post jobs for free, and find the right talent to make your business a success. And now, for three by Ambrose Bierce. In the dark of night, one light still yet burns. Frightened fingers tremble as brittle pages turn. Fireside Mystery Theater presents to you The Midnight Reading, our series of dramatic recitations of dark masterpieces in miniature by the masters of the macabre. Tonight, dear audience, we unearth for you a true obscurity— Three very brief but potent pieces of strange and unsettling works by the great American author, journalist, and critic Ambrose Bierce. If all you know of Bierce is The Devil's Dictionary, or Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, or nothing at all, you are missing out on one of the greatest bodies of weird and macabre fiction this side of Edgar Allan Poe. The following three pieces, An Unfinished Race, Charles Ashmore's Trail, and Science to the Front, as you'll soon observe, are all joined by a particular theme. Immediately following these readings, I'll provide a little extra background and context so that you just might raise a few more hairs on the backs of your necks. 
I shall start off by reading the first story. The second will be read by Ms. Mary Murphy, and the final piece by Mr. James Reeser. An Unfinished Race James Byrne Worson was a shoemaker who lived in Leamington, Warwickshire, England. He had a little shop in one of the byways leading off the road to Warwick. In his humble sphere, he was esteemed an honest man, although, like many of his class in English towns, he was somewhat addicted to drink. When in liquor, he would make foolish wagers. On one of these two frequent occasions, he was boasting of his prowess as a pedestrian and athlete, and the outcome was a match against nature. For a stake of one sovereign, he undertook to run all the way to Coventry and back, a distance of something more than forty miles. This was on the third day of September in 1873. He set out at once with the man with whom he had made the bet, whose name is not remembered, accompanied by Baron Wise, a linen draper, and Hammerson Burns, a photographer, I think, followed in a light cart or wagon. For several miles, Worson went on very well, at an easy gait without apparent fatigue, for he had really great powers of endurance and was not sufficiently intoxicated to enfeeble them. The three men in the wagon kept a short distance in the rear, giving him occasional friendly chaff or encouragement as the spirit moved them. Suddenly, in the very middle of the roadway, not a dozen yards from them, and with their eyes full upon him, the man seemed to stumble, pitched headlong forward, uttered a terrible cry, and... vanished. He did not fall to the earth. He vanished before touching it. No trace of him was ever discovered. After remaining at and about the spot for some time with aimless irresolution, the three men returned to Leamington, told their astonishing story, and were afterward taken into custody. But they were of good standing, had always been considered truthful, were sober at the time of the occurrence, and nothing ever transpired to discredit their sworn account of their extraordinary adventure, concerning the truth of which, nevertheless, public opinion was divided throughout the United Kingdom. If they had something to conceal, their choice of means is certainly one of the most amazing ever made by sane human beings. Charles Ashmore's Trail The family of Christian Ashmore consisted of his wife, his mother, two grown daughters, and a son of sixteen years. They lived in Troy, New York, were well-to-do, respectable persons, and had many friends, some of whom, reading these lines, will doubtless learn for the first time the extraordinary fate of the young man. From Troy, the Ashmores moved in 1871 or 1872 to Richmond, Indiana, and a year or two later to the vicinity of Quincy, Illinois, where Mr. Ashmore bought a farm and lived on it. At some little distance from the farmhouse was a spring with a constant flow of clear, cold water, whence the family derived its supply for domestic use at all seasons. 
On the evening of the 9th of November in 1878, at about nine o'clock, young Charles Ashmore left the family circle about the hearth, took a tin bucket, and started toward the spring. As he did not return, the family became uneasy, and going to the door by which he had left the house, his father called without receiving an answer. He then lighted a lantern and, with the eldest daughter, Martha, who insisted on accompanying him, went in search. A light snow had fallen, obliterating the path, but making the young man's trail conspicuous. Each footprint was plainly defined. After going a little more than halfway, perhaps seventy-five yards, the father, who was in advance, halted, and elevating his lantern, stood peering intently into the darkness ahead. "'What is the matter, father?' the girl asked. This was the matter. The trail of the young man had abruptly ended, and all beyond was smooth, unbroken snow. The last footprints were as conspicuous as any in the line. The very nail marks were distinctly visible. Mr. Ashmore looked upward, shading his eyes with his hat held between them and the lantern. The stars were shining. There was not a cloud in the sky. He was denied the explanation which had suggested itself, doubtful as it would have been, a new snowfall with a limit so plainly defined. Taking a wide circuit round the ultimate tracks, so as to leave them undisturbed for further examination, the man proceeded to the spring, the girl following, weak and terrified. Neither had spoken a word of what both had observed. The spring was covered with ice, hours old. Returning to the house, they noted the appearance of the snow on both sides of the trail its entire length. No tracks led away from it. The morning light showed nothing more. Smooth, spotless, unbroken, the shallow snow lay everywhere. Four days later, the grief-stricken mother herself went to the spring for water. She came back and related that in passing the spot where the footprints had ended, she had heard the voice of her son and had been eagerly calling to him, wandering about the place as she had fancied the voice to be now in one direction, now in another, until she was exhausted with fatigue and emotion. Questioned as to what the voice had said, she was unable to tell, yet averred that the words were perfectly distinct. In a moment, the entire family was at the place. But nothing was heard, and the voice was believed to be an hallucination caused by the mother's great anxiety and her disordered nerves. But for months afterward, at irregular intervals of a few days, the voice was heard by several members of the family and by others. All declared it unmistakably the voice of Charles Ashmore. All agreed that it seemed to come from a great distance, faintly, yet with entire distinctness of articulation. Yet none could determine.
examine its direction, nor repeat its words. The intervals of silence grew longer and longer. The voice painted and farther. And by midsummer, it was heard no more. If anybody knows the fate of Charles Ashmore, it is probably his mother. She is dead. Science to the front. In connection with this subject of mysterious disappearance, of which every memory is stored with abundant example, it is pertinent to note the belief of Dr. Hem, of Leipzig. Not by way of explanation, unless the reader may choose to take it so, but because of its intrinsic interest as a singular speculation. This distinguished scientist has expounded his views in a book entitled Verschwinden und Sein Theory, which has attracted some attention, particularly, says one writer, among the followers of Hegel and mathematicians who hold to the actual existence of a so-called non-Euclidean space. That is to say, of space which has more dimensions than length, breadth, and thickness. Space in which it would be possible to tie a knot in an endless cord, and to turn a rubber ball inside out without a solution of its continuity, or in other words, without breaking or cracking it. Dr. Hem believes that in the visible world there are void places, vacua, and something more, holes, as it were, through which animate and inanimate objects may fall into the invisible world and be seen and heard no more. Now the theory is something like this. Space is pervaded by luminiferous ether, which is a material thing, as much a substance as air or water, though almost infinitely more attenuated. All force, all forms of energy must be propagated in this. Every process must take place in it which takes place at all. But let us suppose that cavities exist in this otherwise universal medium, as caverns exist in the earth, or cells in a Swiss cheese. In such a cavity, there would be absolutely nothing. It would be such a vacuum as cannot be artificially produced. For if we pump the air from a receiver, there remains the luminiferous ether. Through one of these cavities, light could not pass, for there would be nothing to bear it. Sound could not come from it. Nothing could be felt in it. It would not have a single one of the conditions necessary to the action of any of our senses. In such a void, in short, nothing whatever could occur. Now, in the words of the writer before quoted, the learned doctor himself nowhere puts it so concisely. A man enclosed in such a closet could neither see nor be seen. Neither hear nor be heard, neither feel nor be felt, neither live nor die. For both life and death are processes which can take place only where there is force, and in empty space no force could exist. 
Are these the awful conditions, some will ask, under which the friends of the lost are to think of them as existing, and doomed to forever exist? Boldly and imperfectly stated, as here stated, Dr. Hem's theory, insofar as it professes to be an adequate explanation of mysterious disappearances, is open to many obvious objections. To fewer, as he states it himself in the spacious volubility of his book, but even as expounded by its author, it does not explain, and in truth, is incompatible with some incidences of the occurrences related in these memoranda. For example, the sound of Charles Ashmore's voice. Now it is not my duty to endue facts and theories with affinity. Pretty strange, huh? But what's even more mysterious and chilling is the fact that the author of the three pieces you just heard, Mr. Ambrose Bierce, himself vanished without a trace somewhere in Mexico in 1913 at the age of 71. His disappearance is, to this day, one of the great unsolved mysteries of the 20th century. Did Mr. Bierce somehow foreshadow his own fate through these curious pieces of fiction? One thing that hasn't vanished is the impact Bierce's work has had on subsequent generations of authors and readers alike. The next time you're in your local library, we recommend trying to hunt down a volume of Bierce's fiery but fantastic fiction. Of particular note is his 1893 collection of weird tales, Can Such Things Be?, which contains such classics as The Death of Halpern Fraser, The Middle Toe of the Right Foot, and The Damned Thing. Keep your eyes open at the next garage sale or thrift store excursion for a first edition of Can Such Things Be? Today, a copy in good condition is worth over $3,000. Just the same, there's nothing quite like holding a great book in your hands and thrilling to the turn of every page. Reward yourself by supporting our great local libraries like the superlative one we are gathered in right now. We take these important institutions for granted sometimes, but there's no better time to stop doing that than now. And that concludes our episode. Three by Ambrose Bierce were read and performed by Ali Silva, Mary Murphy, and me, James Reeser. The Midnight Reading theme was written and performed by Martina De Silva. Fireside Mystery Theater is produced by Gustavo Rodriguez, Ali Silva, and Daniel and Rebecca Graves for Fireside Mystery Productions. Our theme music is by Jason Graves. Our musical score is improvised by Steve Blanco. Our sound effects designer is Greg Russ, our sound engineer is Wayne Silver, and our production coordinator is Dahlia Morali. Special thanks to Alexandra Kelly and all the amazing staff at the New York Public Library, 53rd Street, as well as Jeremy Helton and all of our good friends at Audioboom for helping to make this event possible. 
If you like what we're doing, do please take a moment to give us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us out, and your feedback means the world to us. Why not rock out a Fireside Mystery Theater t-shirt, hoodie, phone case, mug, notebook, sticker, or any of the other cool items adorned with our logo? Go to the merch page at firesidemysterytheater.com and check out what's on offer. You can also connect with us on Instagram or Twitter with our handle at Fireside Mystery. And for those of you in the New York City area, mark your calendar. Fireside Mystery Theater returns to the stage for a brand new season of thrilling and chilling original radio drama this Sunday, October 1st at 2 p.m. At the Bickford Theater at the Morris Museum in Morristown, New Jersey, we're bringing a show we call Sing the Old Alma Mater. Tickets on sale now at morrismuseum.org. This is your own James Reeser, reminding you as ever, lest you disappear, to mind the shadows. <laughs> <laughs>